Scriptures are finishing the offering. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, as it's been called, and our overall study through Matthew's Gospel. If you're not used to using a Bible, Matthew 5 can be found on page 810, at least the section we'll be looking at. And when we refer to chapter numbers, those are the larger numbers, and then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. For the past few weeks, as we've been going through this series, through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching has led me to talk and us to think about lust, physical intimacy, marriage, divorce, and what I've noticed as I've given those messages, something interesting is that many of you have found it very easy to stay awake for them. Those passages are filled with all kinds of things that make you, you know, be alert and attentive. Sometimes it's because of the painful memories that are associated with those topics. Uh, the messages were private and personal and really all up in our thoughts and our motives and things that happen in our homes, and we were talking about them publicly. So like you would imagine if you weren't here that we had an attentive audience. Part of it too is that they're convicting. They pierce deep into some of our biggest struggles and sins. And so as we turn the corner to the next section in Matthew's gospel, we're going to talk about oaths and vows. And many of you might think, whew, I can take a deep breath, maybe catch up on some sleep. You know, on first glance, I don't really struggle with oaths or vows. I don't even remember the last time I've taken an oath. So, good. This one I'll just, you know, tune out. And if that's you, I honestly don't blame you. I was tempted as I started studying this to think, oh, man, this is not as, like, heavy and, you know, exciting as the last messages. But I think the simplest way to illustrate why you should, hopefully, give some energy to stay awake and, and listen up it's just illustrated this way. If you're a parent or you've been a child that grew up with loving parents, you've probably heard something about the importance of honesty and integrity before. For example, have you ever heard yourself say this, or maybe if you're a child, you heard your parents say this? You know, it's not a big deal that you knocked down the picture frame and broke it and glass broke everywhere. Like, we can fix that. I just need to know, like, what happened and who did it. And if you're lying to me, now we have a bigger problem. Have you ever heard something like that? Parents, have you ever said something like that to your children? My guess is that if you love your children, then you know the importance of honesty and integrity, and that if your children are just lying to you, like, I don't know if I can trust you now. If you're going to lie about this, well, what about something much more important? In other words, our families, our marriages, and our church community are built around having trust with one another based on our speech. Some of you are here at this church, Embassy Church, because in the past you said that pastors and church leaders have lost your trust. So to listen to them preach God's word week in and week out, but when you know their real lives day in and day out, you're like, there's an inconsistency. I can't listen to that man teach God's word when I know that this is how he treats his spouse. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine me preaching last week all about the importance of protecting and honoring women? It was a big part of last week's message. And then you get to know my wife, and she says, yeah, he's a jerk. Like, how long are you going to stay at the church? 
Like, honestly, you shouldn't stay much longer. You should either get rid of me or you find another church. If this church is going to tolerate that sort of thing. My speech, my integrity of my whole life, they all go together. And so I hope that you'll see that this is much more than just oaths and vows. You would see that marriages that fall into divorce, what we talked about last week, and commit adultery is often because of first failing to trust and speak truth to one another honestly. So let's dive in and see what Jesus has to say for us today. And my guess is you'll see that this is not maybe as exciting as some of those other topics, but it happens to us more often and is more relevant than those. Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So I'm going to give you a long sentence that's going to break down our message of unpacking this section of Jesus' teaching into three parts. The three parts will answer what Jesus is saying, why he's saying it, and then how this works in us. And here's the sentence for you to sum up the whole thing. Jesus, in this passage, forbids us from manipulating religious and legal speech. That's the what. Jesus forbids us from manipulating religious and legal speech. Why? Because this comes from an evil heart with disrespect for God. So then how? How can we not be those kind of people? Because of God's oath toward us and his grace in the gospel, he gives us power to heal. So Jesus forbids us from manipulating religious and legal speech because this comes from an evil heart with a disrespect toward God. But because of God's grace, he gives us an oath. And that oath transforms the heart and heals the soul so that we can then be people who don't manipulate religious and legal speech and live with integrity and honesty. That's the big idea. Let me unpack that for you and see where that's coming from first. What is Jesus saying here? This is kind of the main gist of the message. So if it goes longer than the other ones, you'll know why, because this is the essence of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is forbidding us from manipulating religious and legal speech. Now, why say it that way? Because it seems on first read, it sounds like he's just forbidding taking oaths. Why not just say Jesus is forbidding taking oaths? And you'll see very soon that that's not what I think Jesus is saying just on the surface level. He's saying don't manipulate religious and legal speech for your own advantage to make yourself look good. So let's start. Look at the passage. You have heard it said, and then Jesus is going to summarize and combine two Old Testament passages. Here's the two passages. Like he's been doing in the previous sections. He's taking some Old Testament teaching. He's saying, look, you've heard this before, but I'm going to make sure you get to the spirit of it, the true meaning of this this law, the, the law is pointing us a direction, and I'm going to point you even further where it's going. So here's the two laws. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely. Do not swear by my name falsely and profane the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, 21 and 23. 
If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will secure, surely require it from you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from the vowing, then you won't be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what was passed on your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Those are the two key texts. There's probably at least 10 or other Old Testament passages that I could throw out there if you really want to dive into the details, but I hope you get the idea. Jesus is quoting Old Testament ideas about vows. I'm like, look, you don't have to make the vow, and if you don't, then that might be, you know, you're not guilty. But if you do make the vow, and then you swear by God, and then you lie, and you don't keep your promise, you're guilty of sin and punishment. Now, one thing I want to make clear is that there is a distinction between vows and oaths. And I do think that Jesus' heavier emphasis here in this passage is the oaths, but there is an interchangeability between these two concepts. At least the general concept is in the same, you know, family. So vows are when we make promises. Have you ever done this? God, I promise that I will go to church every Sunday if you fill in the blank. Or God, I promise that if you give me this job, then I will. That, that's what we mean by vows. Oaths or swearing, swearing is not four-letter curse words, by the way. That's normal modern language when we say swearing. Swearing is oath-taking. It is appealing to God as a witness on matters of dispute. You're arguing with somebody. There's a discrepancy. You want to win the argument, so you bring in God's name to say, no, no, on the name of God, I'm telling the truth. This is how things happened, and we're going to settle it that way. And it's kind of up the ante a little bit of your argument. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So then, why does he say in our text, but I say to you, don't take any vows at all. And Phil, you're saying forbidding manipulation of legal speech or religious language. Really? Yes. Do you think that every single married person in this room is in sin because Jesus said this and they took a vow on their wedding day? That's what a covenant is, a wedding vow. I promise to do this. An oath before God. Do you think that every Christian is now unable to work in public office and swear loyalty to whatever office that they are to run? They could never be the president of the United States. So every self-proclaimed Christian that's a president, well, they're not a real Christian, not a true Jesus follower. Or any other swearing in as mayor, governor, etc. Or what about reading the New Testament and realizing the people that followed Jesus' teaching, and were well aware of this particular teaching, seemed to take several times, several instances, swear an oath, and use God's name. For example, Romans 1.9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you in my prayers. God is my witness. You can be assured, I am praying for you, Roman church. 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Galatians 1.20, in what I'm writing to you before God, I am not lying. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And if that wasn't enough, get to the last book of the New Testament, and who is making an oath? An angel. Yeah, not just Paul. Well, he's a sinner. Maybe he sinned when he was writing the Bible. Probably not. But an angel in Revelation chapter 10, an angel who I saw standing on the sea in the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And there would be no more delay. It seems that when you read Jesus or his brother James, and you just read it on the surface, that it would seem as if they're saying no vows at all, but then you're watching the other Christians and even angels in the New Testament, and you're like, but they're still doing vows. For example, James 5.12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. That sounds just like Jesus, right? No qualifications, no exceptions or ifs, ands, or buts. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of what Jesus is saying and what James is reiterating in James chapter 5? We need to remember what we said last week because this section is six illustrations of what Jesus said in the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Good teachers, repeat things. So I'm going to repeat this yet again. What is the key section of the Sermon on the Mount, the thesis statement? If you're writing a paper at school and you want to have a good paper, you need to say, all right, this is what I'm trying to argue in this paper. Here's my thesis. Jesus has one of those, even though he's not writing a thesis paper. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And he says, I am not abolishing the law of the prophets. That's not what I've come to do. I'm going to fulfill them. And then he goes on to explain how the whole law will be accomplished. And then look at verse 20, the key text. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we go through these six illustrations, every time it's really important that you understand what did the scribes and Pharisees do and how did they understand the Old Testament laws that Jesus is quoting. If you're not understanding that context, then you're missing Jesus' point. So last week when we looked at divorce, we looked at that context. We went back in the Old Testament. We saw how he's fulfilling the protection and honoring of women with his commands about divorce. So what do we do this time? Well, we look and we realize that the reading that was given earlier by Christy just up on the stage before I came up, Matthew chapter 23, if you want, turn again. But Matthew chapter 23 is important Pharisee scribe background for Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. What's going on in Jesus' day? Well, you don't have to look too far. You can just read Jesus' own words. He says, Woe to you, you blind guides. You who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he is bound by his oath. Do you see how, like, tricky they're being? The loopholes they're looking for in the Old Testament law? Well, we're not supposed to swear falsely. So I'm not going to use Yahweh's name because we probably shouldn't say Yahweh at all. That's a no-no. But I probably just shouldn't use anything related to the name of God, but I'll kind of take it as, I need to say something here. I need to make my case strongly, so I can't use Yahweh's name. Well, I won't use the gold of the temple. I'll just say the temple. I swear by the temple that I'm telling the truth. He's like, Really? That's how you're leading people, Pharisees and scribes? That's a blind guide. You're leading people nowhere good. 
Which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. Well, it's okay. If you swear by the altar, then you don't have to keep that vow. You don't have to keep that oath. But if they swore by the animal on the altar, well, then you better keep your vow. Now, it might seem to you like this is just goofy and nonsense and not applicable. But in a moment, I think you're going to see, no, no, we do this quite often too. But what's the point? The point is is that when you study the Jewish background, not just Matthew chapter 23, but you study guys like Philo. Philo was this Jewish man and leader around the same time of Jesus. They would explain that there are people who are swearing incessantly and thoughtlessly about ordinary matters. This is Philo, by the way. And he is saying, when things come into dispute, they fill up the gaps in their talk with oaths and forget that it is better to submit to have their words cut short or rather be silenced altogether. What's Philo saying? That it is common in disputes when it's like, uh, I don't know what to say, that you just fill up the empty voice, void of, of space in that conversation and dispute with just swearing and allegiance, making a, all these oaths to the temple and to the altar, etc. And so there's an entire book in the Jewish tradition, like it's called a tractate. There's an entire book, essentially, that tells you that depending on how close you are to the hot spot of God's presence that you're swearing by, that there's degrees to whether or not that will be a valid oath or not. Could you imagine reading an entire legal book on like, well, that's, yeah, that was a little too much. Oh, no, that person, they stole your donkey, but then now they're telling you that they did it and they swore just by this, well, it's okay. That's what's going on. This is normal. They're playing games. They're looking for loopholes. They don't really care about integrity. They're just making sure that they're obeying the letter of the law. Hey, hey did, I, did I disobey Leviticus 19? Well, of course I didn't. I'm a good Pharisee that obeys all the laws. But they're missing the heart of the law, aren't they? And it should drive you crazy when you are around your own sin like this or other people. And this is what's driving Jesus crazy, which is why he says, Woe to you! You are blind guides. So let's put this in modern day language. They are bullying with their words. They are intimidating people in disputes by creating lofty speech. They're they're looking for loopholes. And so a a man named Dallas Willard, he has a, a fine book called The Divine Conspiracy on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how he sums it up. The essence of swearing that Jesus is targeting here is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words sound more significant and weighty. The aim is to impress others with your seriousness or your great piety so that you get what you want. This is a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for your selfish purposes. It is straight-up manipulation, or as we say in our culture, we're spinning the story. And Jesus calls this evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of others. So at this point is when you go, oh, yeah. On the surface, it seems like vows, oaths, whatever. But when you get to the heart of what Jesus is addressing, it's like, no, we do this every single day, all the time. We make ourselves look good, and we manipulate our speech to make sure, well, I could tell the story, 
this way, the way it really happened, or I could make myself sound better. And that's what we do. We spin the truth. Have you ever watched any advertisers employ this strategy every time you turn on the television? They're not going to tell you what really happens if you consume their product and get addicted to it, and it leads to all sorts of disease. But they might make it look like everything's great and wonderful when you do. They're spinning it. What do politicians do? What do news media do? How many times do you have to hear, is it real news or is it fake news? How do we know? How about a salesperson? Any of you that are in sales, think deeply. Are you selling people with integrity and honesty and really wanting to love your customers? Or are you just trying to make a buck and you're kind of stretching the truth? Well, I didn't straight up lie, but I did exaggerate a little bit. It's a verbal smokescreen. It's hiding the truth from others. And so we do make oaths, by the way. We do say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. I cross my heart and hope to die. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Apparently one Bible's not enough. On a stack of Bibles. And do we not use religious language to manipulate our conversations? Christians, hold on for a second. I know that you thought that this might not be an intrusive sermon, but it really is. Think about this. How many times have you yourself heard this or heard yourself say, well, I think God's calling me to do this because I prayed about it. And then you go do something with, you know, you really didn't pray about it, number one. And number two, like, you did not ask other people for counsel. You're just using that religious language to shut the conversation up. I don't really want your input because I know that this probably isn't the best decision to do, but I'm just going to tell you God called me to do it, and that's the trump card. Can you really stop that? Like, if God called me to do it and I prayed, then it's a done deal. So those that are laughing know I have been around that. Those of you that are not, welcome to Christian community. We're messed up people. There's, there's some good and bad, and hopefully you're going to see all of that today, okay? So this is what we do. We, man, we manipulate religious language. We manipulate legal language and oaths to try and get our way. And worst of all is when church leaders, hold me accountable to this, use religious language and scripture to say, it is God's will that you do this individually, or it is God's will that we as a church, in the next five years, we're going to do this. How many campaigns or how many things and projects that are not clearly laid out in Scripture are being backed by this, this is what God's having all of us do, and if you don't, you are not with God's will. And sadly, too many of you have shared stories of being in church cultures along those lines, so I know that this is relevant to us. And so this is what Jesus is forbidding, manipulation of religious and legal speech, where we're looking for loopholes around telling the truth. That's question number one. What is Jesus saying? Let's answer question two. Why, why does he care about this? And the reason he gives is because this comes from an evil heart that disrespects God. As that Jewish teacher Philo said, an oath is an appeal to a witness on matters of dispute, and it calls to God as a witness. And when you lie, this is the height of profanity. Or take Jesus. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for. Now, key in on that word. Every time you see the word for in the New Testament especially, 
You're going to know a lot of times it's grounding a clause. It's telling you that here's what I'm telling you to do, and now I'm going to give you a because, a reason. So what's Jesus' reason? I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And by that, I think he's saying, don't make these frivolous oaths. Not that all oaths can't be done, but these kind of oaths that he's about to illustrate. Do not take an oath by heaven. If you think that saying heaven instead of God's name is going to get you out of it, he says, no, heaven is the throne of God. Or if you take an oath by earth or something on the earth, like the temple walls or the temple floor, well, that is his footstool. All the earth is his. And then there's this other debate. This is one of those you read the long book, and I did not. I did not waste my time reading that long book. Of, but one of the excerpts was about, you can take an oath by Jerusalem, but not toward Jerusalem. See the difference? And Jesus addresses this directly. He says, and if you take a, um, an oath by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, don't do that either. Do not take an oath by your head. Now, I don't know if he's saying, your head is if somebody's saying, look, God will turn all my hair white if I do this, like you're taking a vow. Or if he's just saying, like, if you try and do anything on your whole body, your head representing the whole of your body, say, well, I'll give my right arm for this, and I tell you, I'm not lying, you can cut my arm off. Anything on your body, he's like, is that really your body? Can you even make your hair turn white or black? No. So simply, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. In the literal language, it's just let your yes yes and your no no, and it's to show the emphasis. Let your yes be a strong yes, and let your no be a no. And in the Christian community, I think it's quite clear that what Jesus is trying to say here is that, you know, we may say oaths or vows, but we should be the kind of people that don't ever need them because we're so full of truth and integrity. And anything that needs or demands more is oftentimes coming from an evil heart that's trying to manipulate or, or get your own advantage over a conversation or a situation. So it should be obvious that this is a problem, right? It should be obvious that this destroys marriages, communities, families. It f- destroys the trust between your children and parents. And Jesus says, do not do this because... If you understood that God is everywhere, he owns sovereignly everything, that all of it is his, then there's nothing you can swear by that doesn't directly relate to God. So quit playing games. That is not the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. That's not the sort of kingdom culture he's trying to create on the earth. He wants people that see God's presence is everywhere. So put it another way. The reason why We manipulate language is because we have an inaccurate view of God. It always really does boil down to that, by the way. Your view of God is a direct result at the fruit of your life. So here, what's the view that people have of God? Well, like the gift on the altar, that's pretty sacred. But the altar itself, forget about it, right? You know, like something like that. Well, I, 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 can, I can make an oath based on, you know, my head. You can take my head off if I don't stand up to this vow. And God's like, that head's mine. This earth is mine. 
You can't just say that this is unrelated. You you have an inaccurate view of the sovereign rule of God over all creation. Therefore, I suggest that one of the antidotes to our lack of integrity is realizing that God is here everywhere. His presence consumes the whole earth. And it would be like taking last week's couple messages and saying, you bring a mistress into your home. And you've got wedding pictures all over your bedroom. How uncomfortable do you think that makes that person feel? And if you've listened to people that have done these acts, they often remove those pictures and put them down and take them off the wall because like, ah, that's kind of weird. I I can't commit this act of indecency with the presence of my wife looking upon us. It's just like, ugh, you know? Use that as an illustration of what Jesus is doing here. You can't go anywhere without Jesus having the picture on the wall of his image and his presence all around. And these Pharisees, these scribes are going around, they're acting like, well, it's okay. It's not the temple. Every square inch is his. His sovereign rule reigns and rules over it. Psalm 139 Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, even your right hand shall hold me. Do you know what the psalmist is doing there, David, in Psalm 139? Where's the heavens? If you were to point somewhere, point. Where's the heavens? Point. Thank you for those participating. We're pointing up. Sheol, what's Sheol? Pointing down, that's the grave, that's the word for where people go when they die, which is in the ground. Okay, next phrase. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, where does the wings of the morning come? Where does the sun rise? East. So if we're all standing, which way is east? That way. And then where was the sea, if you're in Jerusalem, where's the sea from your perspective? This should be easy by now. There's only one place left, right? It's west. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? I can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere. I go to the highest of heavens, he's there. I go to the lowest of the grave, you're there. If I go east, if I go west, you are there. This is what is lacking in the theology of the Pharisees and scribes. And so if you would like your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, The antidote isn't to read a new book on how not to be a liar. The antidote is ultimately to be in awe of the glory and majesty of the sovereign ruling God over all of the earth. In fact, the New York Times, not too long ago, has wrote an article about how the awe factor that has been done in research and psychology and different things, that when people are in awe, it leads them to serve and love others. Is that not an interesting study? That the New York Times would publish and say that when people are led to awe, like a beautiful sunset, there's this transcendence, there's this beauty, this awe that leads them to just say, wow, I just want to give of myself to the service of others. Do you see what the problem is? The problem is a lack of awe a lack of wonder and the grandeur and the glory of God, the lack of fearing God because the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Think Acts chapter 5. This story is insane. 
When you read the Old Testament, you see like God dropping people left and right, and you're like, whoa, it's intense. Whoa, I like the New Testament better. It doesn't seem like that happens, but it does. In Acts chapter 5, there's a story of this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and when you read it, they're, they're bringing offerings to the church. So imagine, just a few minutes ago, I came up forward and I said, hey, if you're a visitor, welcome, we're glad you're here. We're not going to expect you to give an offering or anything. You know, this is for the church members. And so the church members give their offering. And then what if, just randomly, I'm never going to do this, so don't worry. But I just call somebody out and be like, hey, so did you give your offering? Now, did you give all of your offering? And in this story, in Acts chapter 5, the husband comes and says, oh yeah, I gave my offering. I, I gave all that I had. And he was lying straight to their faces. And then they called him out on it and said, no, you didn't. You didn't give all of it. And when he heard those words, it says he dropped down dead, right? The wife didn't know what was going on. She comes in and is like, hey, what's all the commotion? What's going on? Oh, well, you know, your husband, you guys brought that offering of that, that gift you were going to give to the church. Oh yeah, we gave all of it. Boom, she drops down dead. And then it says great fear seized the whole community. They were led to awe and wonder. Now, I was thinking, I don't know if I should pray for that, right? Like, that would work, wouldn't it? I could give a sermon or we could go around and say, now who gave their offering and gave all that they could give? And if anybody lies, we'll just pray, God, are you going to drop anybody dead? Like, that would be a sermon to remember, wouldn't it? But hopefully you get the point. Hopefully you see that what we're talking about is what they lacked in Acts chapter 5 is the same thing that the Pharisees and scribes lacked when Jesus is condemning them. A lack of fear of God. A lack of seeing the grandeur of his glory over all things. And so I plead with you, if you're struggling with these things, don't look for quick little fixes Get your nose in the Bible, get your mind around deep theology books, and have long, lengthy conversations, no matter where you're at on the scale of your theological acumen, start growing and yearning for a big, great God. One of my favorite quotes that I have given at least three or four times seemed appropriate at this point. So, A.W. Tozer prophetically said these words, and I agree with them wholeheartedly, which is why I keep saying them. He said, in my opinion, the great single need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religion be struck down by a vision of God on high, lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple. It seems to me that the holy art of worship has passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle. As a result, we have been left to our own devices and forced to make up for the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of the people. You see why I like that one? I love that when this church got started, there's like 20 people in an old high school, in a chapel building with very uncomfortable seats. And Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the same there as he is in a coliseum with 10,000 people singing their voices out. I love that it doesn't matter how many musicians we have on the stage, that the best part of worship is when I get to hear the chorus of you all singing around me and saying, be thou my vision, O Lord, of my life. It's the best thought I've had by day or by night. The simplicity of worship to just say, guys, it's just about God. 
It's about a big, great God. Get your mind on God. Make him your vision and the best thought of your day, morning and evening. And regardless of who's leading in worship or how they're doing, this God remains the same. He is unchanging. And this seems to be the very root of the problem that led to Jesus' words. So, Jesus is forbidding a kind of speech and a lack of integrity about manipulating words to try and find loopholes in the law because this is evil. It comes from an evil, disrespecting heart toward God and his world. So how? How do we then become these kind of people? Well, I've told you, get a vision of the glory of God, but there's one more particular thing we must see. Because of God's grace to give us an oath, this should lead us to a different kind of awe that transforms and heals the brokenness of our hearts. One of the reasons I don't believe Jesus is saying, don't ever take an oath, ever, is because the Bible says God took an oath. It's one of the coolest passages in the whole Bible, I think. And I probably say that way too often, so it loses the effect. But I remember being in college and studying the book of Hebrews with one of my friends. And I remember him and I like geeking out of like, this is so cool for like weeks. So that's why I'm saying like, no, this is really, this is a good one. It's Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Right there. God's making a promise, and he wants to up the ante on his words. Now, notice this next phrase. He says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the people who had received the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's the first thing. And the second thing was the oath that we who have refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. So notice what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he reads his Old Testament. When you're having a dispute, you want to up the ante to make sure that people believe that, no, no, you are not lying, you're telling the truth, and what do you do? You give an oath. And in the Old Testament, that is not forbidden, it just says, don't do it falsely. Don't bring an oath and say, no, I swear by the name of God that I'm telling the truth. You better be telling the truth when you do that. That's the Old Testament law. And it doesn't seem as if Jesus is saying don't ever do that. He's just saying you should be such people that you don't need to on the one hand. You should do it very rarely if you do. But just know this. God did this when he made a promise to Abraham. And this is what's so cool about this passage. He says, when you're making an oath, you want to find something that's of greater value or power or significance than yourself. So that's why you say, I swear by my, my mother's grave. Like, whoa. I swear by the Holy Bible. I swear to God I'm not telling a lie. I am telling the truth. You're appealing to something higher. And the writer of Hebrews says, so when God was trying to show that he was not going to lie and he wanted you, because it's not like he was struggling. It was we were struggling to believe him. The dispute was I'm telling the truth and you're not believing me. You're struggling to believe the goodness of God. That's the dispute. And so God gives Abraham an oath. Abraham was given a promise. 
that you're going to be the father of many nations, but he never had any children. I'm struggling to believe, God. I need something here. And so he gives an oath. And who's he going to swear by? He has nothing higher than to just swear by himself. It's just like, who could do that other than God? It shows like the godness of God, doesn't it? Could you imagine me like, there's nothing higher than me. There's nothing better than me. There's nothing greater than me. I can't swear by anything other than me. So I swear by me. It sounds weird when I say it. I swear by the name of Philip Howell that I'm telling the truth. Like, yeah, that's funny. That's stupid. But if you're God, you can do that. I swear to God, me. And that's why we were like geeking out about this. Like, this is awesome. God is just so cool and awesome and big and glorious. So, Know that God gives oaths, and his oath is about a promise that his character will never change and that his word will last forever. And ultimately, look at one more oath in the Bible made by God, and it was in the person of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus was on trial before the high priest, he confirmed the promise that God gave to Abraham, and he established a people. He made true all the promises, find their yes and amen, ultimately in who? Jesus Christ. And this happened when Jesus was on trial, and he was asked this question. I adjure you by the living God, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus was put on oath in a public trial of the Jewish Sanhedrin before his death. How does he answer the question? Well, uh, in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 33, on the Sermon on the Mount, you know that I said, I can't do oaths. We don't do oaths. That's not what he does. Instead, he says, You have said it so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming down on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest, when he heard this, tore his robes and said, oh, this man has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Do you realize that Jesus died? Because in a moment of court, when he was asked to take an oath before God and everyone else, he said, no, I am God. And because of that, Jesus died. Oh, the irony then, isn't it? That because of all of our oath-breaking, we deserve death, and we destroy our families, our lives, and our communities because we're not people of integrity. We deserve the punishment. But in fact, it is Jesus Christ who was a man of his word and fulfilled the promises of God. And through that, he then brings healing to all the nations. So in sum, this is the good news of the whole Bible. In the beginning of the world, God made the world. And I think a good way to think about this, this is a new concept or illustration for me, but think of the world when it was first made like a baby as an infant. A perfect baby. Not fully grown. Not fully reaching its potential. And the reason they were to build the garden, extend the garden, was because it was not yet fully mature. But when sin came into the world, that baby, as it started growing, was deformed, and it was maligned, it was diseased, it had all kinds of sickness in it, and that's the earth. The earth was, was perfect in the sense of not fully reaching its potential, but perfect in its potential. And when sin came into the world, it was deformed, it was diseased, and Jesus comes and heals that disease by taking on the disease of 
disrespect toward God and a lack of integrity by standing before the very people that diseased the earth, humans, as a human, and he says, I am God. I will take the oath before you all, and I will die for these words. And it was through that act that Jesus then pours out his Holy Spirit after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He pours out his Spirit on us so we can become a community of people that are fully mature, not manipulating religious and legal speech, fully mature, not disrespecting God and taking his name in vain, fully mature people who live in awe and wonder of not just the grandeur of God, but man, the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to come now and give you thanks for the beauty of your word and the word that was made flesh in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way you have promised and you have doubled down on that promise and you have made that promise come true. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support us in the whelming flood. When all around our soul gives way, he alone is our hope and our stay. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the transforming news that you restore and you heal humanity and the earth to reach its full mature potential. Thank you, God, for the way that you dealt with sin by taking sin on yourself. We praise you for all of these things in Jesus' glorious, beautiful name. Amen. As we...